0: Welcome to CNAS Live, a podcast that brings you recordings of public events from the Center for New American Security. What you're hearing today is a previously recorded conversation, but we invite you to visit cnas.org slash events to learn more about upcoming discussions and ways to connect with us. Thank you all so much for attending today's virtual discussion. CNAS is committed to bold, innovative bipartisan research and the military veterans and society program plays a unique role in also hosting events designed to spark thoughtful discussions about and across the civil military divide after two and a half years of research and hearings the national commission on military public and national service released its final report inspired to serve At the same time, the coronavirus pandemic has thrust the value of different types of service to our communities into the spotlight in unexpected ways. While National Guard units have been mobilized as part of the overall response effort, it has become unmistakable that military personnel alone cannot manage the vast array of urgent needs that arise, particularly during a domestic crisis. Accordingly, today we are going to discuss new or improved means of strengthening pathways to service that may be especially important during a national emergency such as the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll examine what types of changes are necessary and how the nation responds to emergencies, particularly but not exclusively in terms of military responses in the post-pandemic world. I'm Kayla Williams, director of the MBS program here at CNAS, and I'm excited to dig into these topics with three distinguished panelists. Dr. Janine Davidson, a commissioner at the National Commission on Military, National, and Public Service, and an Air Force veteran whose civilian career has included serving as the Undersecretary of the Navy. She is currently president of Metropolitan State University of Denver. Captain Mike Martinez, a career naval flight officer whose most recent assignment, was as a Special Assistant for Legislative Matters to the Chief of Naval Personnel, and is currently completing a fellowship at CNAS. Mike's next assignment will be as the Deputy Commodore of Patrol and Reconnaissance Wing 10 in Whidbey Island, Washington. And finally, Dr. Jason Dempsey, an Army veteran who last served as Special Assistant to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and is currently an Adjunct Senior Fellow at CNAS. Audience members, please feel free to submit questions for any or all of our panelists by text Using the Q&A function at the bottom of your webinar screen at any time, we will try to turn to your questions toward the end of the hour. Let's start out by quickly summarizing the commission recommendations. Janine, the commission made several recommendations on the Selective Service and national mobilization. One in particular was the recommendation that all Americans register for the Selective Service System and a potential draft. For those who have not read the very media report, can you tell us more about why the commission recommended this and how it came to this conclusion?
1: Sure. Thank you, Kayla. Thank you for having us all on here today. It's a super important topic, um, something very close to my heart service of all types. Um, this commission was a journey. Um, we did not start off with preconceived um, answers, and we heard from so many people all over the country um, on this issue. Lots of different opinions about the value and use of the selective service in general, and also especially the, the issue of whether women should be required to register. Ultimately, we came down on the, the decision that we really did think that it's important to maintain the selective service, and that also all um, Americans um, between 18 and 26 should actually register. And the reasons for that were, there were a number of reasons. Um, you know, when you think about the nature of war and how things have changed, um, Originally, this is designed for, you know, large numbers of soldiers storming the beach of Normandy, those kinds of things. And people thought, well, maybe maybe that's a little outdated. But the fact of the matter remains is that we actually don't know what the future holds. And the point of a selective service is not... It's not an automatic draft, it's a registration in case there's a national emergency. And what could possibly be a national emergency? Here we're in one right now, a, a global pandemic. And so the, the the hedge against uncertainty is is one really important thing. And another thing, um, another reason to have it, is, is it's also a message to potential um, adversaries that, that Americans actually are engaged as a civil society in their democracy, and that if needed, We will leverage the talents across the population and that people will be able to um, to serve. That's actually a pretty important thing. A lot of military folks felt like that was an important thing, Um, even though you might say that um, a lot of the a lot of the potential conflicts that we can envision might not require Um, the actual activation of a draft. And then finally, the issue of all Americans and not just half the population, the male population was also a very, very uh, deeply debated um, issue set. And ultimately, we also came down on, it just doesn't make sense if you're actually, if the whole point of this is potential uncertainty and national emergency, something that would be so dire that you would actually have to activate it, why would you leave half of the population uh, on the bench? Um, when when they have many things that they can contribute. And we're not just talking about, um, you know, the physical infantry things. There's all kinds of things that, that might be required. So that's that was the one of the meatiest um, recommendations in the in the report. And that was sort of the That was a rationale for how we got to that. In addition to that
0: significant recommendation to register all Americans, the commission also proposed several other recommendations for Congress and the president regarding national mobilization. Can you briefly touch on what
1: those other recommendations are? Sure, um, I mean, mobilization is no, is no easy task <laughs> um, to make sure that you can actually reach out to people and actually make best use of their talents is is a, a huge planning enterprise. And so um, some of the recommendations include having a, um, a lead official in the National Security Council in the White House that would be focused on mobilization issues. Um, somebody in the Pentagon at the Secretary of Defense would appoint um, an executive agent for, for that as well, somebody that's focused on those kinds of contingencies. Um, also, there's an, uh, an expansion of what we call the IRR, the Individual Ready Reserve, um, which is what some, Currently, it's um, if you serve a few years in the military and then you get out, you put your name in that registry that says, hey, if there's another emergency, you can call me up and I kind of know what I'm doing and I can get quickly up to speed. Um, We haven't really ever used that either. But the idea would be to expand that um, for multiple skill sets for people that even haven't actually ever served. So it would be a a big difference there. And then finally, um, the idea that we should actually have exercises about this. You know, practice mobilization, uh, tabletop exercises, and those sorts of things. And so, those were some of the big um, other higher level um, recommendations.
0: Thank you so much. Sure. Let's
1: now dig in a bit to
0: COVID nineteen response and what may change post pandemic. Mike, one of the recommendations from the report for both military and public service is to develop a system to effectively manage personnel. With each of the services undertaking pretty high-profile talent management and personnel reform efforts, what do you think are some of the roadblocks they've encountered that provide lessons learned related to the Commission's recommendations? How would more effective personnel management systems have contributed to a response to the current crisis, for example?
2: Uh, well, thanks, uh, Kayla. Thanks for inviting me to this panel. I think it is a, a really important topic, and I, I'd just like to lead and, and uh, be clear that these views are my own views and don't necessarily uh, represent the viewpoints of the Navy or the Department of Defense. Uh, but as he said, each of the services have really been undergoing uh, personnel efforts, uh, personnel reform efforts, uh, including developing and implementing policies that really gets at the idea of talent management and seeking to recruit and retain high-quality individuals and then also reforming and upgrading their IT systems that are the backbone of an HR system. And I think that they've encountered roadblocks uh, that are applicable to what we're talking about here. So uh, one of the main ones really is the, the difficulty of upgrading these systems, these government systems that, that haven't really been uh, significantly changed in, in quite a long time. I mean, some of these systems are, are written with code that maybe only a handful of individuals actually know how to uh, use and manipulate. Um, another roadblock I would say, uh, unsurprisingly is the cost of implementing these changes. I mean, these are significant costs, uh, that have significant requirements. So, um, you know, a decision has to be made really to put resources behind it. You know, if we're looking then at lessons learned and, and how that could be applied to the current pandemic crisis, um, is, is being transparent, uh, and upfront with how those changes are being made, both with. The force, uh, the people that use the system, as well as uh, with Congress and congressional oversight, I mean, that's going to help to smooth and implement these changes. Um, I think if, if you played it forward um, and how those lessons learned could be applied to the current crisis, I mean, I think you could see a scenario where there's a modern IT system that's able to quickly identify uh, the right person for uh, a job Uh, that has the skills uh, that would be able to contribute to whatever the response is for a crisis, whether it's a pandemic now or in the future, and then is able to rapidly activate that person and put them in the right place where they're uh, able to do the most good. So I think that's kind of one of those main lessons you you could take away and apply to the current crisis.
0: Thank you so much. Jason, the economic impact of COVID-19 has included unprecedented unemployment and talk of a deep global depression. Some Americans may already be questioning the value of spending three quarters of a trillion dollars annually on the DoD budget. Do you think we may be approaching a paradigm shift in how Americans will view military spending, or do you expect the old trends and habits to continue unabated?
3: The short answer is uh, we can only hope so. Right. And I mean, this is an answer I think most of us would have given six months ago, even pre-COVID. The bloat in our defense budget is so absurd that to hear Esper speak last fall about, uh, you know, a stable defense budget, you'd have thought he was talking about, uh, you know, us having to cut the fleet in half. And so we've gotten so used to having so much money uh, flowing through national defense uh, yet at the same time, we've been speaking for years, particularly as it relates to even the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, that the military alone can't even solve military-specific problems, right, in terms of national defense. We keep we constantly, uh, you know, it's cliche to talk about whole-of-government approaches at this point, yet after talking about it for so long, we still don't fund the State Department. So I think here what we're seeing is uh, – maybe it's the wake up call we finally need, unfortunately. And it's, it's not an academic exercise. It's about uh, keeping the nation together. We absolutely have to rethink defense spending, right? Um, You know, the reaction uh, that we did after nine 11 when we lost 3000 in one day, and now in certain days we've been losing that much, you know, per day, day after day, after day uh, you know, That alone, I think, justifies a relook at how we balance our spending priorities. Uh, You know, we're not going to shoot our way out of this pandemic. So uh, maybe there are other places where some of our defense spending can, can go.
0: Thank you so much. Janine, the report was released in late March, just as COVID-19 began to transform everyday life for virtually all of us. If the recommendations in the commission's report had already been fully implemented at that time, how do you think they may have improved or changed the nation's response to the pandemic?
1: Sure, that's a, that's a great question. It's something that we all immediately thought about. Um, so, Sort of piling onto some of the things that Mike was saying, you know, one of the recommendations in the report is about this IRR, which would have people registering and maybe even putting in some of their own skills and what they're, what they can and can't do. Um, another part of the, the conversation that we had is about um, the methods and mechanisms by which you would call people up. And it, it would, you know, in the first phase, it would be a, a call for volunteers. And um, if we had a better way to call up volunteers and organize them, Something that we had perhaps exercised in advance, tabletopped in advance, thought about in advance in a more broad spe- broad level. Um, I think you might have had a, a more smooth response. Um, I think also, you know, we're very cognizant as commissioners that it, we were, um, you know, charged by Congress and the President. That's a federal thing, and we have a very um, state based system in our in our country, especially when it comes to. Um, you know, homeland issues and like exactly what's happening today. And so the idea that you could be co- better coordinated across states and, um, and better, have a better understanding of what the federal and the state levels are doing, I think also could be very helpful. But I think fundamentally it's about having a sense of who's out there and what they can do, um, having an understanding of how you can find them, leverage them, and, and utilize them, people that actually want to help. And then the third thing is, um, and we can maybe talk about this a little bit later, is um, if if our vision were really realized, um, Americans would actually have sort of a reawakening about the the idea of service of all kinds, and the idea that they um, that they automatically want to want and know how to help in a time of crisis would be something that I think would be a, a better honed if our vision were were realized. And I, I hope that it will be. Let's
0: take that concept a little bit deeper. And when we look back over the past few decades, the debate evolved as to whether the military should be preparing for perhaps exclusively focusing on high-intensity conflict, or whether it should focus on other operations, such as counterterrorism, nation-building, humanitarian support, disaster reliefs, and other types of support to civil authorities. Mike, the DOD's current path is to prioritize the wartime capability of defeating aggression by a major power, deterring opportunistic aggression elsewhere, and disrupting terrorism. Can you envision the military mobilizing for pandemic 2030?
2: Yeah, I mean, absolutely, I can see the, the military mobilizing for the next pandemic. I think, first of all, I think it's important to note that the military is currently mobilizing uh, for, for, for our current crisis, everything from National Guard call-ups to hospital ship deployments here in the country, and also deployment of uh, forces around the world as a signal to our adversaries during these turbulent times. Um, and then it looks like the military is going to play a large role in, in uh, production and distribution of any potential vaccine going down the road. Uh, but then, you know, I would say that that doesn't mean that tomorrow's mobilization is necessarily going to look like today's mobilization uh, in the aftermath uh, of this current pandemic. I think we need to look at whether the military's response was right-sized or effective. Um, you know, I think in the, in the upcoming debate, I anticipate the American public uh, may demand more investment in public health capabilities. And uh, perhaps the utilization of the past to service that the commission recommends Uh, or a larger call-up of reserves or an IRR, uh, but getting at those individuals with critical skills that have been identified early on but may never have served in uh, in the government. Uh, It's it's hard to tell what the military will play in a future response, uh, but I think current events do show that the military will have a role to play.
0: Janine, did the Commission discuss how the military might respond to civil emergencies? And what are your thoughts on whether the services are well-suited to assist with pandemic response like we are seeing to some degree today?
1: So, Kayla, we didn't totally get into that blurring of the line between the, the uh, wartime role of the military and the peacetime role of the military, but it is well understood um, with the National Guard um, structure that we already have that the military possesses a lot of unique um actually maybe not unique but capabilities that they have at scale and you're seeing that now Um, whether it's um, the defense logistics agency which um, could potentially be better utilized right now for contracting and all kinds of things with respect to um, warehousing and logistics (laughs) that's what they do i mean that's what they do they're ready to do it in times of war and um, it's been an ongoing debate among people like us, like me and Jason and Mike for years about the role of the military in this blurred line between the homeland and, and warfare. And um, as, a, as an academic myself um, and a practitioner, I, I've spent years working on this issue of this blurred line. And we, you know, we had a lot of conversation during the commission and, um, and brought in lots of experts to talk about the future of conflict. And the future of conflict is very blurred. I mean, post-conflict reconstruction isn't, a, isn't so much different than you know, what you would need, the kinds of capabilities you would need in response to a hurricane or a wildfire or a pandemic. And so um, when we talk about service, um, we talked a lot about um, like the wildfires in California and the hurricanes in the South were very top of mind. And the way in which Americans step up and respond was, was a huge part of that conversation and how we can leverage that spirit, that talent, um, in a in in a more um, organized way is is where the the uh, recommendations finally came down.
0: Thank you so much, Jason. Why do you think when thinking about national service, we default to the military model? And Although, as Mike mentioned, the military has played a role in this, it has been somewhat limited. What do you think we can learn from the somewhat limited role of the military in this crisis?
3: Yeah, so I think there's there's really two threads here um, when we talk about the military and service. One is. Uh, this angst in America about the collapse of faith in all of our institutions. And the military is the only institution left standing that kind of has the trust and confidence of the American people. So we often, you know, that's the the one we want to turn to, right? We don't trust our state governments. We don't trust the president. We don't trust the Congress. And so often we're looking for a silver bullet. Uh, to come by and fix these national problems. And, and too often we default to, well, the military can do it. And so that's the thread of just you know this idea that we've kind of lost faith in governance. And so let's turn to this thing that we all love and respect to help us out. The other part is execution. And it's interesting in here in this instance particularly, uh, you know, we, we, all, we love the visual of Uh, the naval ship comfort, right? It looks big. It looks powerful. It's a symbol of America. It's got the red cross on it. We all want to love it. But at the end of the day, it probably provided more symbolic uh, assistance to New York than it did actual assistance. And we have to ask, is that how we want to spend our money? Or are there more efficient ways to address crises like this? Um, yeah, you know, so the fact that we've the military is one of the few things that we resource fully and without question means it's we often just turn to it and say, okay, well the military is going to solve all our problems. Uh, you know, in today's debate, it has to do with the fact that we mobilized a bunch of guard and reserve, uh, but we're going to shut their deployments down so that we don't have to incur huge education and costs down the road, right, and provide them you know, full benefits that we provide active force who've deployed, you know, uh, overseas. Uh, and it's it's tough, right? Because you feel for those guardsmen, but then it also raises the question, is this the best tool for the job, right? Do we really want to mobilize the Guard and Reserve? And is that the model we want to look at? So I would suggest the model we need to be looking at is, you know, how did we develop uh, local firefighting capabilities, right? And what can the federal government do to say, all right, this is going to be a consistent problem, but it's going to flare up here and there. So how do we create the systems, the mechanisms that can be implemented at the local level uh, by some paid cadre and some local volunteers who are on standby uh, to address these public health crises? And so what I hope here is just We realize that just because we've got this big golden hammer in the military, that doesn't mean we can use it to fix every single problem America faces. And so I hope we rethink, you know, other means of service and other tools to address some of our challenges.
0: Thanks. I think that's a great point. And I've also been a little concerned that as we try to nickel and dime long term benefits when we do activate the guard, whether people will remain inclined to um, volunteer for it. Um, shifting gears a little bit, the end of conscription in 1973 launched what was then a novel concept, concept that of an all-volunteer force, which includes both active and reserve military forces. And following the 9-11 attacks, the department took steps for a really deliberate shift from strategic reserves to operational reserves. Let's talk about force structure a bit and how that impacts the department's ability to respond to future emergencies, whether man-made or natural. Janine, how can we create more flexibility in reserve and national mobilizations, including for non-prior service personnel?
1: Sure, Kayla. Um, That kind of builds on what Jason was just talking about, which is um, I actually really agree with him on the the need to have that local capability. Um, What I also think, though, is at the end of the day, the American taxpayers have paid for this as you called, overbloated uh, military, which has uh, immense amounts of capability. And so in a big emergency, um, it's, it would seem um, unreasonable or maybe not very frugal to leave, leave those resources in the garage when you may need them. And so I, I feel like we have to have a system where you can blend these things um, and dial it up and dial it down depending on um, how bad the situation is. Um, to your point about so how do you how would you better better activate that, it gets to some of the things that we talked about before, some of the primary recommendations in the in the report, which is to have a structure at the national level that allows you to exercise these things and practice them and figure out what the bugs are before something bad happens so that you 'll know. But primarily this um, registration system, the IRR type of system where we can actually have a call for volunteers and know how to activate them um, across the talent pool of the United States um, from the very local level, like Jason was saying, all the way up to something at the, at the, that needs to be coordinated um, above.
0: Do any of you have thoughts on whether you believe we should recreate a strategic reserve or how we should be balancing between active duty forces and operational reserves?
1: Well, we have tipped, as you say, to a very operational reserve and, uh, we all have served in different services and I was in the air force in the 1990s. And, um, as a, as a cargo pilot, I would have said we were already there because the air, the air force, um, you know, strategic fleet was very much an operational reserve. And I think that that works for some areas. It may not work for all areas and it depends on people's flexibility in their own employment. Um, so, you know, in the, for instance, again, in in the flying world, you, many of those um, reserve and guards pilots were also airline pilots and they could really juggle that calendar and that schedule and it could work. Um, but to rely on it for infantry or artillery and some of these other things, when you're you know, in an actual <laughs> warfare situation, now you're, at, now you're blurring that line between operational and strategic. And not that it has to be a perfect line, but I think you just have to realize which parts of your um, defense um, apparatus are most amenable to, the, to which, of those, um, which of those models. And you will leave a lot of talent on the bench if you can't work it into people's lives. And you may be lying to yourselves about how flexible people actually will be in an all-volunteer situation.
0: Thank you for that. Jason, when looking forward, what can we learn from looking back at previous service initiatives? The most notable being those initiated during the Great Depression and then the larger calls to service during World War II.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to look at the you know, kind of the history of, you know, what we call service. And, you know, I don't think, at least I certainly wasn't thinking about our reactions to the Great Depression. Uh, You know, I think all of our service questions were around draft, non-draft, military, et cetera. But now all of a sudden in COVID, I think it causes us to even broaden the aperture a little bit and look at, well, what was going on uh, during the Great Depression? How are we reacting? And I think, you know, I think To me, there were three phases, right? There was kind of an immediate economic push during the Great Depression to stand up organizations like the WPA, uh, the Civilian Conservation Corps, the Tennessee Valley Authority. And there was a lot of angst around how efficient those were. And they really didn't do anything for the national economy until World War II hit. And then we had this mass, mass mobilization. And of course, we always default to World War II, right? We love the idea of, hey, look, everybody was on board. Kumbaya, Sunshine and Roses, and we all went to the great fight. Um, and then after that, we have a new phase of service where I think probably the most depressing thing when we look at the history of service is in recent years, right, service has become the purview of the rich, right? It's something that privileged kids do to pad their resume during the summer, right? They travel to an you know someplace overseas. Uh, to do kind of poverty tourism and say, look, I was helping the world. And it's really this kind of performative thing that everybody's like, well, and so it has a bad taste uh, for most folks. And so I think in looking across those three, you know, and looking at what's successful and what's not, I think one, right? Service has to fit a clear need Uh, for one. It can't just be make work, right? It can't be, let's go, do something that makes us feel good, but actually is not sustainable. And two, it has to offer, I think, a benefit to those who go serve, right? So there has to be a very tangible outcome. And I think where we are, and I think what the commission was great at, and what Janine and crew kept hammering home, was this idea that you're introducing a lifetime of further service, maybe through these small acts, Uh, And so I think we really need to think through how do you get people involved and then set up a system such a way that, okay, maybe for a year they do something Peace Corps-like, but then what's waiting for them on the backside? Uh, And lastly, I would say one thing that we're missing and the one thing we saw during World War II and these other times, you know, that we, we look back on and say, aha, that was great period of service is consistent widespread government messaging. Right? about the need for all these things. Right, right behind me here is a poster for the French Liberation Loan of World War I, right? And these, this was part of widespread, you know, we call it propaganda, but it's public relations saying if we want to defeat the Hun, we all have to come together and everybody has to chip in. Uh, so we're often missing what service is really for. And so we think it's kind of a hobby or something neat to do. I hope we take advantage of this and put together programs that say, okay, we do have a need, a need. Let's set it up so that one, we're not sacrificing people uh, needlessly as they tackle this thing, but put them on a path to success and use their talents efficiently and all within a broad structure where we all understand that everybody has to sacrifice a little, but it's all about for the greater good.
0: Thanks. I think those are some really interesting points. And it also sparked my memory of, you know, we, we think about a lot about military service and uh, we don't always think about non-military forms of service, even during times of war and the potential um, second and third order effects. A story that I found really fascinating that NPR did several years ago was about how during World War II, uh, conscientious objectors uh some, some of them w- served in um, mental hospitals. And what they saw about how um, suboptimal the conditions were really drove some substantial changes that ended up having substantial benefits uh, for folks getting mental health care into the future. And thinking about how even those who object to military service can still find ways to serve that, again, benefit that greater good. Um, Finally, I'd like to turn to how we can prepare to do this better in the future. Uh, Mike, the services devote significant resources to recruiting, yet they still seem to end up relying heavily on pools of individuals from the same regions of the country, many of whom have family members who have served. Does this current national crisis represent a maybe once-in-a-generation opportunity to appeal to a larger group of people. Are there pathways to accommodate a larger recruiting base for military, national, and public service?
2: Yeah, you know, I think you're right, Kayla. And and it's a known issue that the services have been dealing with a smaller recruiting base. Um, I do think this represents, this current crisis represents a unique opportunity to appeal to a wider base of a, for a recruiting pool. I mean, times of public crisis bring out the best in American, in American public. Um, and on the one hand, you know, during times of high unemployment, the services have a larger pool of recruit, uh, to recruit from, but there are some unique circumstances at play here that I think may affect the ability to recruit, uh, including the possibility uh, of a decreased defense budget. Um, uh, the services are going to have to be very deliberate about the types of talents and skills that they need to succeed in a, in a fiscally constrained environment. Uh, but this is where the payoff comes from upgrading both talent management policies as well as uh, uh, talent management systems. You know, ideally, uh, this would enable the services to ID what I talked about before—the right person for the right job at the right time, uh, whether or not they are currently serving. You know, that's the type of work that we should be doing now. So, both upgrading those policies as well as those systems be- before the next crisis. So initiatives uh, that the commission recommended, such as increased civic education and public service outreach, uh, can, can be critical to opening up those new pools of recruitment for public service.
0: Thanks so much. Jason, I think you started to touch on this a bit before, and I'd like you to go a little deeper. Previous service initiatives often fell prone to the perennial American tensions of race and class what do you think we can learn about how responses to enlist citizens in public service in previous eras either exacerbated racial tensions or became a flashpoint for the battle between workers and elites?
3: I think the, I think the great depression to world war II transition is instructive. You know, there are huge debates about whether, things like the Civilian Conservation Corps and the Tennessee Valley Authority, right? Were they being good stewards of, you know, things that business people said, well, this should be taken care of by business, right? We don't need government involved in setting up dams and infrastructure, right? This should all be, you know, let the market work. Um, And I think it, it points to this tension that you just if we ever justify service, even though service might be a means to uh, advancement, it can't be portrayed that way. right? And so uh, if it's ever about lifting up the poor or improving the livelihoods of those left behind, then Americans don't want it, right? And there's going to be huge debates. Whereas once World War II happened, it's like, hey, everybody needs to be on board. And oh, by the way, if we have to pay and provide benefits to people, Uh, that will help them live better lives to tackle this common problem, then that's what we'll do. Uh, And there's no value judgment. I mean, obviously I have feelings on that, but that's just, that's the way historically it has seemed to work where I think this might be interesting. And I think interesting enough, early on in this pandemic, uh, one of the great scholars who did groundbreaking work on how the question of what we owe veterans actually shaped uh Americans approach to welfare uh one of her comments early on was this pandemic particularly is going to divide the 80 and the 20 even more than previously right I think most of us here and most of us on these calls right we're fairly comfortable uh you know we're able to work and skype from home we have internet connections we might be suffering but we're not nearly suffering as much as other folks where i hope maybe we can turn the corner on some of this is you know we we got away from the draft when we realized that one we needed people serving but that it was being implemented unfairly uh here right we're all in this together but if you're a meat plant worker you're kind of getting screwed right now um you know you have to go to work for a minimum wage uh you know you may not be getting the right kind of ppe uh, but you 're going to absorb that risk while we you know give uh, forbearance to corporations, so if we start looking at that as hey guess what it doesn 't matter what your social class is the virus doesn 't care, then maybe we can say, okay, how do we all collectively work this together uh, and provide kind of this this rich not even a safety net, uh, but opportunities to serve, opportunities to work in communities in ways that, one, it tackles the current problems uh, in a way that ameliorates instead of exacerbates existing racial and class divisions.
0: An interesting opportunity indeed. Uh, Janine, there's another side of the policy recommendations for national mobilizations. We tend to talk a lot about institutions, but the commission talked about the importance of civic education, as Mike alluded to earlier. What's your view on how we should engage with the American people about preparing for future mobilizations? What should the expectation be for Americans to respond to calls for volunteers or the potential of a national mobilization?
1: Sure. I mean, I talked about how our, our overarching vision became um, every American inspired and eager to serve. Well, where does that happen? And, and again, some of the things that Jason and Mike both were just talking about, the lines are a little blurred and, and the, we didn't intend to, to land so strongly on the need for enhanced civic education. But when you start peeling the onion on all these issues, it goes back to that. Um, where, do, where do young people even learn about service of all kinds? When do they even think about it? And we, we learned um, a lot of things as we were going around the country. One of, I mean, a lot of people didn't even really know what the selective service was. We had um, men who had signed up, did not even realize it, right? So <laughs> nobody's teaching them about this and they've, they've signed up, right? Sometimes they didn't sign up because they didn't have a driver's license and then they don't even find out about it until they have to um, sign up for financial aid in college. And then they're like, what is this? They go home and they ask their parents, like why why were they not taught that? And so that led us down this path of what are people being taught? And it wasn't a very pretty picture in America right now. And um, when you combine good civics education with um, experiential learning, then some of the things Jason was just talking about start to blur in a very good way, right? Um, AmeriCorps, for instance, things we call national service, um, was designed for all the right reasons in the early 90s, like Citicorps uh, to bring um, this, the more privileged students out of their shell and get them into these other communities and helping. Well, it sounds all great. But multiple generations later, what we've learned is It's an amazing opportunity for these people because they've learned so much about America. They, um, and those who do the Peace Corps abroad, um, they bring those skills and that experience back to wherever they go on to do. They are more likely to be engaged in civil society, yada, yada, yada. But wait a second, (laughs) what about all these other people that don't have the luxury to serve in AmeriCorps that doesn't even pay minimum wage? It's like a quasi-paid internship. What if we thought about it differently right? What if we thought about it as part of education to do something like that to have even you know part of your high school um, a service obligation or something that you score points on um, and because what we know to be true is that young people when they have those opportunities become sort of volunteers for life. They, they get hooked on service for life. They they meet people from different socioeconomic groups that they never met before. That strengthens our democracy. It strengthens our civil society, society. and All those things are very, very good. And then one other thing is, um, you know, good six education also introduced people to career exploration. So we haven't talked as much about Civil service, right? And so, you know, in my own experience, um, when I was Under Secretary of the Navy, you know, thousands of people in the Navy and in the Department of Defense are civilians, professional civilians. They're doing acquisition. They're doing all these kinds of things. And we couldn't put ships on the water and planes in the air and boots on the ground without these people. Yet, for the last few decades, we have had this steady drumbeat of um, negativity about government negativity about service negativity about bureaucrats and and that's not helpful right and it actually isn't true these people are amazing they are serving their country and i think if anything this pandemic might have done that i hope it has done is awakened people's awareness to all these amazing people that are serving in your government for you whether it's public health or firefighters or policemen not just the military and they're not you know, so-called, you know, under overpaid and underworked lazy quote bureaucrats. And that's not a bad word. And we need to elevate the um, respect value and prestige um, of these career fields because we need them. And, and there are amazing people doing it. So that's the optimist in me. And that's another part of the vision that the commission had.
0: Thank you. And I think at least one of the audience members may be thinking along those same lines. We've had some pretty robust audience engagement in the chat and Q&A sections. So anybody else who wants to weigh in in that way, uh, please do. And I'll try to get your questions to the panelists. I'm excited to now open it up to some audience questions. The first one uh, relates pretty directly to what you were just saying, Janine. Why not have a national service that feeds into all federal institutions, i.e., the Public Health Service, Coast Guard, Forest Service, Park Police, and even smaller federal institutions with manpower directed as needed? Uh, Do any of you have thoughts on that as a question or as a proposal?
1: I can go ahead, Jason. I see
3: you. (laughs) I just say the, uh, you know, everything Janine just said is, you know, gets to, I think, the base issue we all have here, right? It's like uh, we we pine for service, we pine for a competent military because all around us we don't feel that we have a competent government in our day-to-day lives. Uh, And so, you know, as much as I'm proud of my military service, I think we all agree that, you know, the military, again, is not the answer to these things, and I think a rebalance in – how we look at well, what keeps the nation healthy, safe, and secure, and a lot of that goes to you know the public servants that Janine talked about. What I would say though is the you know at the end of the day, um, you know I would more rather see you know sustainable service in government than. Uh, relying entirely on volunteer efforts, right? Because there's almost always an inefficiency there. It's either the inefficiency of who's coming in, it's the inefficiency in how they're used, it's an inefficiency in accountability. Uh, So I'd like to see volunteer opportunities as a way to, again, expose people to what government does and how we can tackle common challenges. Uh, But at the end of the day, I think it goes back to a re-engagement with civil society that says you can't complain about a lack of healthcare, lack of firefighters, potholes in your road unless you not only don't get in, you know get involved in national elections, but you know pay attention to who's on your school board and you know how you're manning and paying your local police force.
0: Thanks. Um, we have another question um, that says, the operational connection between Guard and Reserve is informal now. Statutory roles are not in place for reservists to be seamlessly supportive of domestic emergency needs. How would they be made immediately available to support? Janine, I don't know if you want to take that
1: one. How would they be made immediately? Well, the... the, the um, guard, reserve, and active duty complex that we have is actually very complex <laughs> in some ways. And it, it's driven by um, laws about what the military can and cannot do domestically. And so um, the state guards, National Guard system, is in a different legal category. Um, the, the military that is in the states, that is the state guard system, they report to the governors. The governors are commanders in chief of their states the reservist structure is a little different. It is actually part of the National um, Department of Defense, and it has specialty capabilities in it, things like logistics and healthcare and a lot of these other things, Um, things that would actually uh, be very useful in some of these kinds of domestic crises that we're talking about. And so it is actually a bit of a a conundrum, because um, to access those capabilities is a different legal thing. And I, I sound like you know, ridiculously legally oriented, but that's what it comes down to. And we've done this to ourselves as society, right? We created this structure for all the right reasons, and then it actually makes it difficult to access those capabilities. But it was by design to, for the reasons that Jason mentioned, which is we don't want to always use the military every time we have a problem. We want to be using the net, the local firefighters and the local um, police. And maybe that is a redundancy of um, investments. But it's also about being prepared for one thing when something else might happen. Right. If all you ever did was access those capabilities then if something, you know, um, you know, Conflict or war abroad were to happen, and they're tied up doing these other things at local levels around the country, you would have a problem. And we did have that problem in Katrina when the State Guard was actually overseas and wasn't available. Um, in that community. So um, there's no perfect answer here. And I think that's another reason why um, one of the recommendations that we have to um, exercise and tabletop these issues and the mobilization sets is really, really important because it may sound boring, but a lot of times these, these tabletop exercise come down to the legal requirements and whether or not they're, they're um, adequately um, orchestrated and designed. And so um, not, not the perfect easy answer because it is a complex question. So thanks for that.
0: Thank you. Uh, Jason, the next one I think I'll direct to you because you brought up the importance, uh, well, the, the proposal of, of uh, trimming the perhaps bloated Department of Defense. And the question that came in was, do you have thoughts? Do you all have thoughts on ways to maintain capabilities and, or deterrence if DOD is forced to cut capacity?
3: Um, <laughs> you know, I think that's a whole other hour of discussion. Uh, but obviously I do feel that the DOD budget is wildly bloated. Um, you know, we can watch a video, uh, you know, we went, you know, just the, the CRAM rockets being used at FOBs in Afghanistan. Now, I mean, just watching, you know, hundreds of hundreds of thousands of dollars being shot into the air, you know, on the off chance that a $5 rocket, uh, you know, might kill somebody. And that's, you know, nobody's ever going to say don't spend that money. Uh, But maybe there's smarter ways to approach uh, force protection and security in country. Maybe there's a human element there that, uh, you know, doesn't tie into just pouring billions of dollars into Raytheon. Um, But that requires a little bit of engagement, right? Who has the interest in looking at these things? And so in terms of our pandemic response, you know, to bring it back, to that it's uh you know we want to call in the military and bring in military doctors or reserve doctors and this you know gets to the complexity of what janine was talking about uh you know much like we saw in katrina where you know guard who, who's going to fill sandbags here if you call up all of our medical personnel out of the reserve and guard well you're pulling people who are otherwise you know facing the pandemic in their hometown and in their local hospitals so uh, you know, instead of thinking that the military is the solution, how do we create a more robust uh, public health care system that can react uh, to a pandemic like this? Um, you know, this probably isn't our last one, right? And so we have to, you know, it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, the debates in the years ahead. Uh, you know, if taking the economic loss from this compared to, Uh, you know, what we might have to spend to prevent this in the future. Uh, It'll just be interesting to see if the the window has shifted, if we're actually willing to put money into something that might directly impact or prevent uh, a staggering loss like we've seen with this pandemic.
0: Thank you. I'm going to try to pull together two different threads a little bit so early on i think in response to janine you mentioning that the commission did recommend uh all americans uh, have to register for selective service including women there was a question about rounding up women if they didn't participate and i should not have been surprised uh, because i was involved in some of the efforts to rescind the combat exclusion policy i am myself a veteran and am quite aware that thoughts and opinions about women in combat, women in the military uh, are, are, There's still quite a bit of um, emotion involved in some of these discussions. And then I'm thinking about how we're broadening our discussion about service. We're thinking about responses to pandemics. And we know that women participate in healthcare fields at very high rates. So when we try to imagine how we could have national mobilization to respond to a pandemic, uh, the services of women certainly spring to mind. Uh, So I, I wonder if any of you want to touch a little bit more on the thought of women being part of national mobilization, whether that's for military service or more broadly. Um, be interested in hearing from you, Mike, since you are still on active duty, and uh, I know you you serve with women and um, may have thoughts on this, but would love to hear from any of you about these kind of intertwined concepts.
2: Well, I can certainly uh, just take initially the question, um, you're right, as an active duty uh, service member in the Navy. Uh, Every unit that I have served in has been fully integrated with women. And I think what tied everyone together really was that calling to public service. So so the desire to serve something uh, larger than just the individual um, was what tied everyone together and made it effective. I think, you know, going down the road as far as mobilizing uh, the entire population or, or entire groups of population, I think it depends on you know how that looks in the future if we're if we're acting on some of the commission's recommendations and uh you know a future activation could be both for military or some other national or public service and in that case uh, y- you would you wouldn't want to leave anyone on the bench you would want to fully access uh, all the talent that's available uh, that exists in our country today uh,
1: if i may you know in The impetus, the original impetus for this commission was the fact that in 2015, all barriers in the military against women were removed. So, you know, I was one of the first women flying cargo planes in the early 90s, however old I am. Um, But then, you know, fighter planes and then submarines and then finally infantry. And that was a big move, but it also, it raised the obvious question. If there are no more barriers, then why are women not required to register for the selective service and then ver- therefore be eligible for the draft? Because there had been um, a court case previously and the, the ruling was that women should not have to register for the selective service because they could not serve in combat. So this issue of women and combat, especially like infantry and, and boots on the ground, um, has been blurred, right? Because as we know, we've all been in the military and those of you who are watching know many that, um, 70% of the jobs, at least in the military are not boots on the ground, carrying a pack. Um, they are everything from, you know, cyber warfare to medical stuff, to mechanics, um, so many things, accountants, the military does all kinds of things. And, um, so that was sort of the, the lens that we started with. And you're right, Kayla, the um, debates were pretty fierce for the entire time, You know, two years of traveling around and talking to lots and lots of people. And I'll tell you the spectrum went something like this. Um, when we would talk to younger women in high school and college and early 20s, you know, millennials, um, overwhelmingly they were like, some of them would, would say women aren't supposed to, what? They didn't even know, right? (laughs) Back to civics education. But they were also sort of appalled that in in the time of a national crisis, that people would think that women would be um, either allowed to um, sit on the bench or not invited to actively participate in the solution. They were actually sort of offended. On the other end of the spectrum, there were people who were very against it because they were very much blurring that line to um, combat, you know, and and they were trying to relitigate the decision that had already been made that women would be in combat, and um, uh, lots of uh, lots of arguments about why women are not physically capable to serve in combat, even though um, they are. Um, <laughs> we already know that, um, and I will, as a as an individual and as a former service member, and I would say, you know, the debates went back and forth, um, but ultimately we did come down on the side that. Given the high-tech nature of conflict and the uncertainties associated with whatever kind of national emergency you may or may not have, that it didn't make sense to leave all the, half the population on the bench, especially when so many of them were actively raising their hand to participate.
0: Thank you. Uh, We had a question that I don't know if any of you will have answers to, but it is making me ponder a bit. Uh, The question was this is predominantly focused on human mobilization, but what are other forms of mobilization that could be included? Uh, So, you know, I, I thought, I wondered, you know, are we mobilizing our pets? joking a bit. Um, Perhaps this is a thought about um, mobilizing, say, our corporate partners to be more directly involved in producing needed supplies. Uh, So it's just certainly something to think about a bit. I don't know if anybody wants to jump in on that or if I should just move to a closing question. Um, any thoughts on, uh, other forms of mobilization than, right. than humans?
1: I, I agree. I'm not quite sure unless they are talking about writing checks, but ultimately you're probably writing checks to activate other humans to do other things. Um, so, but uh, yeah, it's an interesting question. If the, whoever asked it wants to clarify, that would be, that would be helpful.
3: And I think we're certainly we've reached, you know, we, we did the last 20 years of war on credit, uh, and now our credit looks really bad. Um, you know, so the fact again, back to this, you know, World War One, World War Two, everybody raised funds and asked folks, you know, we raised taxes and we asked folks to uh contribute. You know, we might not be there yet, but the idea that we can just kind of pawn these collective costs off to either future generations or that somehow, you know, some market actor is gonna wanna step in and assume all this debt just out of the goodness of their heart. Um You know, that time is probably past, and I think we need to, uh, you know, we really do need to look at these other forms of mobilization, right? It's not just people serving, it's somebody paying for people to serve.
0: Provocative point. We're going to close with a question that came in. Uh, The question was Do we need or how do we define a broader definition of service? So I think it's the last question I'd like each of you to. Just try to say how would you define service if you had, a, if somebody, you know, your kids or, uh, or, or somebody else's kids even were to ask you to define service, what would you say to them, to young people today? We'll start with Jason and then do Mike and then close with Janine.
3: Uh, you know, interestingly, I think you know, I tried to avoid diving into the rabbit hole of the etymology of, of service um, it's a weird word, um, you know it can both you know draws its roots from you know enslavement to um, you know just somebody willingly sacrificing and so uh, for me i'd like to get it away from this idea of sacrifice uh, and this idea that I'm giving up of something and more you know an act that promotes the greater good i e you know it's not something that i'm volunteering for right we don't people aren't delivering our letters on a volunteer basis but we collectively have said we should pay somebody to make sure everybody in america can get a letter for 20 cents or you know where it's 50 i guess 50s plus cents now right but it's a, a consistent a common thing uh that's a commitment to a common good is where i'd rather see it other than sacrifice which which blurs the debate a little bit
0: Thanks. I like that. And I know that for me personally, when I find even small ways to serve my community, I often feel like I get as much or more out of it than those who I'm serving. Mike, how about you? How would you define service?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And it's something that, uh, that I have thought a lot about and, and, and talked to the, to the folks that I work with. Um, I think that in my view, service, uh, in my experience, service has been uh, united effort towards a common goal. So the, the men and women that I have worked with come from very different backgrounds uh, from all over the country. But what, as I mentioned before, what united them was, was a desire to serve something greater than themselves and a desire to serve the pu- public good. And, and that's how I, I think I would define uh, service is, is that desire to, to unite and, and serve something greater than themselves.
0: Thank you so much. And Janine, I'll give you the last word. You spent two and a half years thinking about service. So after all of that study, how would you define it?
1: Well, I will say we did go down that rabbit hole many times, and that was one of the the joys of being on that commission was how deeply we thought about these issues. Because as soon as you start thinking about service, I I really agree with Jason that it shouldn't be considered some pitying thing. You know, when people say, thank you for your service to me as a veteran, I'm often kind of taken aback because I felt like it was a privilege. So that's, that's not kind of the thing, but um, I do think that it is about something you can't do just by yourself. Um, You know, the the idea of public good or community action is because I, I can't, Move all these things together by you know alone by myself, and it takes that collective action and for people to do that is an act of faith and belief that other people will also join in and so um, I, that's how I would say it. things that are going to lift the society as a whole versus you know um, just hunker down and i'll say um, you know as a as a university president now um, you know I look around my university that is so focused about being part of the community, and here we are, there's a pandemic and we're told the best thing you can do is stay home and guard your toilet paper, you know, but actually there is a lot more you can do, right? Whether it's just getting around into your neighborhood and checking on vulnerable people and bringing them groceries and all those are acts of service as well and things that people can't do. And the more you collectively get together and do those together, I think that's where we really see the vision.
0: Thank you. And I hope the audience will join me in thanking Janine, Mike, and Jason for sharing these fascinating insights. We all really deeply appreciate you delving into these topics and I'm especially grateful to you for doing so virtually. I also extend my thanks to the audience for joining us in this format. Uh, I'd urge everyone please follow at CNASDC on Twitter or click follow on our website to get email updates about future content like this. We did record the session and I'll encourage you to share the link with folks who are unable to attend live when it comes out. Thank you again so much and I hope you all have a great day. You've been listening to CNAS Live. To receive invitations to future public events. And to learn more about our experts' work, visit cnas.org slash join. You can also connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.